Welcome to Tusk Talk, Episode 4. We are casting currently with Evan. Hello, how are you doing? And we got Brendan Hagen, ex-resident of Atlanta, some Star City Top 8 fame. Introduce yourself, Brendan. Hey there, I'm uh, Brendan. I moved away from Atlanta about two and a half months ago, and I'm currently in Fairfax, Virginia. So cool, I've got cool. the, whole, the whole Maryland, Virginia, D.C. area legacy scene going on. Well, hadn't heard much from you lately, Brendan, so tell us what's going on with your uh, with your move. What's up with you and Legacy right now? So, sadly, Legacy in my area is pretty limited. Uh, we've got maybe, you know, five or six consistent players, uh, but the rest are either too lazy to travel an hour for Legacy events or just unwilling to get out on weekdays. Uh, so that's kind of put a damper on things as far as the week-to-week goes. Uh, but otherwise, I mean, there's there's plenty of local events if you want to travel, you know, an hour to three hours. Um, I've been fortunate enough to get out to some uh, some Winamoxon events, and I'm going to be going to another one this weekend. Uh, so, I mean, that's, you know, it's it's a little different, but it's uh, I'm still getting to play at least, so that helps a lot. That's not too bad. How, what was the most recent event you played in? So, the most recent event was SCG... Uh, it would have been Philadelphia, I believe. Uh, played the Legacy 5K there, and uh, I think I got ninth on Breakers. Ugh. No, I got ninth on a clean cut. It was uh, I was X1 and one. It was a clean cut. So you still cool. pl- still playing Elves? Yep, playing Elves currently. Um, haven't really had the inspiration to build another deck. Um, I don't know if you guys know, but I actually sold my Savannahs before I moved. <laughs> oh, really? And then, uh, so I've been in the process of picking those back up, actually, because I, 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 I kind of miss having Savannahs. The Maverick spirit in me is, uh, is just refusing to die, so. Hey, green-white is a good color combo. It definitely has its merits. I think right now it's actually, you know, not unreasonable to play, so. Yeah, I think there was the SCG Classic that just happened where <clears throat> Maverick got fourth uh, just this week. Yeah, um, the deck has enough tools to deal with the current fair deck suite, and I think it has some game against Miracles. Um, without Dig, the deck's not nearly as uh, endgamey. You can actually grind them out and still, you know, have a little bit more advantage. Um, so you just have to worry about, you know, Entreat and, like, not running into Terminuses. So it's definitely not the most hostile format that it's been. Uh, without the show-and-tell decks in abundance, you're actually in pretty good shape. Yeah, it seems like there's a lot of decks out there right now that can beat show-and-tell decks. So Elves just isn't really going anywhere at the moment. You know, it's one of the fastest combo decks, and for some Elves, reason, everything that I play currently just can't beat it. Elves is kind of in that that, that limbo area where it's, it's still the most powerful, almost fair thing you can do. Um... But it, it's just, it's still struggling to race against Storm and those kind of decks. Um, and so your gauntlet kind of turns into, you know, your your generic Grixis Delver deck or whatever kind of variant you want to play. Uh, turns into Miracles, turns into Ad Nauseam, and it turns into Elves. Uh, and so it, it's, it kind of feels like a race between Ant and Elves, and whichever one can actually pull out ahead of the fair decks is, uh, is usually going to do all right. Um, but it, it's still... It's still pushing that that little tier one, uh, tier one zone there. Yeah, uh, that kind of 
brings me to want to talk about our, our latest local event. Um, we had a, for those who are <clears throat> not from the Atlanta area, we re- recently had a legacy tournament. It was 48 people at Gigabytes Cafe in Marietta, Georgia. There, there's going to be another one, and uh, w- what brought me to talk about that is uh, the Elves deck took second place. This guy, James, who's a, a local from the southeastern area. So it just goes to show that if you know your deck, you can keep winning with your deck. Yeah, that was uh, James Hess, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. He's uh, he's always been a very solid Elves player. He makes consistent plays and uh, and does really well in those kind of things. Yeah. I mean, I know Gigabytes isn't always the best representation of the, the field of Magic, because I'm sure you guys will agree with me when I say that there's a lot of interesting decks that show up at Gigabytes. <laughs> Certainly. Um, so, like, I'm looking at the top here right now, and you've got essentially what equates to a Tezzeret control deck in first. No, wait, this is this is the Grand Prix trial. Uh, where am I out here? It was Berserk. Uh, in yeah, fact, in took first place. Wu Tang, first place. Mm-hmm. Wu Tang is Wu Tang on first. We, yeah, the only real interesting one I think in the top eight was probably Sean's deck, the the, the humans deck. Um, a lot of it was pretty classic. Oh, and then Aluron, of course, with Andrew. Yeah, so we got first place with Infect, second place with Elves, third place with uh, Blood Moon Stompy, essentially. Uh, fourth place is an Esper Stoneblade list. Uh, Using new Jaces and a Dak Faden. No, it's a Blue Redstone Blade deck. Um, fifth place is Blue Red Delver. Sixth place is Grixis Delver. Seventh place is your Alluring deck. And eighth was Burn. So, I mean, when you look at that, I mean, that's not what is always performing well in these large events. Um, you don't generally see, you know, Aluren, and you don't usually see Stompy decks. Um, and Blue Air Delver, too, actually, has been kind of trailing off a little bit. And I don't know why Andrew continues to grind Blue Air Delver, but he makes it work somehow. <laughs> it seems like he's that's just, like, his his back pocket deck. Uh, he's a good player, too. Didn't he take down an open? He did. Uh, that was fairly long ago, but, I mean, he, he still somehow makes the deck work, even though it doesn't always seem like the best choice, but... I mean, I think that's part of what Legacy is still, anyways. Um, you might have your most powerful decks, but as long as you know how to play your deck, you'll generally win uh, at least the, ma- the majority of your rounds, and then if you get a little lucky, you can win the rest of them. Yeah, I did notice some interesting tech when I was watching him play that Blue-Red Burn deck. He was playing Italian Chain Lightnings. <laughs> yeah, you cannot redirect that one, because you cannot read it. Yeah. Um, I... <laughs> I'm always surprised when a burn player plays their own Italian Chain Lightning and I go to redirect it and they have no idea that it actually is. That's a function of that card. <laughs> yeah, I've, uh, I have I think it was Eternal Weekend. I don't know if it was the main event or a side event or whatever, but I'm playing against some some little sprat on a burn deck. And <laughs> I'm, like, I'm basically about to lose, and my only out is to misdirect his Chain Lightning to him. And... It, it resolves, but he pays two and just deals me three again. Yeah, absolutely. Hey, whatever, whatever, go for it when you got that's that's your only out, you know. Yeah, you gotta you know take the risk and see what happens. Yeah, um, I know I've certainly had a burn player puzzle when I redirected his chain lightning using death right in virtual rangers. 
Such a good feeling. Well, and, like, he did it pre-combat, too, so I got to kill his Delver. <laughs> so, uh, every so often you can just trick him up, and they won't quite know what's going on. Let's talk about Sean's deck for a second, since uh, it was probably the most interesting deck out of the top eight. Sure, yeah. He's got uh, four Magus of the Moon, four Prophetic Flame Speaker, I'm sorry, uh, four Spirit Guide, three Revoker, three Scob Clan Berserker, which is a card I had to certainly read because I couldn't really remember what it did. Um, it's one of the new inclusions from Magic Origins for that deck, and I think it's actually pretty solid. In that, that card's awesome. It actually does sort of function as a you know an efficient clock, um, and that deck kind of lacks that sometimes. I mean, essentially, if you if you get one swing in uh, and it becomes renowned, your storm opponent's going to have a tough time beating you if they haven't already beat you before you cast right. it. Like, and for those you know unaware, when it becomes renowned, uh, it essentially becomes Eidolon. Uh, and so that's something the deck doesn't really get usually. Um, it's a bit of actual punishment. I mean, it, it has its its chalices and its blood moons to lock up the game. But it's nice to have that redundancy and actually have another effect that actually punishes those kind of faster decks than you. Oh, no, it's a one-sided Eidolon. Yeah, it's a one-sided Eidolon. Okay, I didn't know that you mentioned one-sided. I don't think I did, actually, so it's even better. <laughs> yeah, I, I unfortunately had to play against him. I was doing... I So the tournament was six rounds of Swiss and cut to a top eight. And I went 4-0... Got paired against Sean in the fifth round, so we drew to get some food, and so I kind of just missed having to play him there. And then mm-hmm. my round six opponent was James, who was the first, the top seed. So we scooped again just so, so I could, you know, take a breather and um, <clears throat> go into the top eight. So first round of top eight, I play Sean. Uh, you can't escape the inevitable, and he's playing eight moon effects in his deck, and I'm playing Alluren, but I have three basics in my deck, so. I I thought I might have a chance at getting some basics out and surviving, and I just got obliterated. I never even played the game. Uh, it, the hands that I kept, I think I was able to thoughtseize out his only moon effect, and he just rips another one off the top. You know, just <laughs> it it was a pretty good call for for the tournament playing eight blood moon effects. Yeah, and blood moon certainly you know, it's just it's insane, especially even when you don't think it's going to be insane. Um, I mean, as an else player, people always say, you know, isn't Blood Moon bad against your mono green deck? And uh, that's actually incorrect, because I'm a deck playing two basic lands and trying to use my guy's cradles. Um, <laughs> so a lot of times, like a turn one Blood Moon like this deck can consistently do, is just going to shut me down, and I, I can't come back from that. Um, so the deck, you know, the deck has a lot of game uh, that you wouldn't really expect from a deck that is playing... Uh, blood moons against the field of multiple basic land decks. Yeah, unfortunately, he, he actually did end up losing to the Elf player of the tournament. Yeah, it's... So I've always found with moon decks in general, especially against Elves, is that if they draw the right piece of hate, they are basically unbeatable. Um, but if they can't follow it up, they can't produce a threat or continue to drop more relevant cards, then they, they kind of stumble, and I can... Uh, I can start to actually apply pressure to the board. Um, but it, it really is. It's just, it's so mulligan-dependent. Um, and my ways to interact aren't the best, and his ways to interact are really, 
draw dependent, and so it's, it's, a, it's definitely an interesting matchup. But I think Blood Moon was especially right for this match. Uh, like, just looking at this top eight, I mean, he basically hoses half the decks in this top eight by just playing a Blood Moon on turn one. Yep. Like, I don't think Infect really beats it. I don't think Blue Red Stoneblade has a good chance of actually doing anything relevant for us to match. Um, I don't think your Alluring deck has a you know a fighting chance against that. Um, and, and like well, like I said, I think Else is kind of a, a, a coin flip in that regard. Uh, sometimes Blood Moon is the best thing in the world, and sometimes it's not. Um, but I mean, and then when that doesn't work, he's also got you know the, the chalices to back it up, and and those are continually good in Legacy. Yeah, I'm I'm bumping up to James's Elves deck. Do you? What do you yeah. think about Rinsbrook Packmaster? So, I love Packmaster. Um, Read the card for those who don't know what it does. Sure. So, Packmaster is a 4-mana Elf Warrior uh, with Champion and Elf. So, when it comes into play, I have to remove an Elf. And that comes back when he leaves. Um, and then, that's actually probably the most relevant part, is that it's a 5-5 five, five with Champion. Uh, but additionally, it allows you to... Uh, basically extend more pressure to the board without using cards by paying three to make a 2-2 green wolf, and each wolf has death touch. Um, so the card might not sound that impressive as far as a four-mana creature in Legacy goes, uh, but what it really does is it gives you this kind of mid, uh, mid-mana cost kind of threat. So when you're not killing them with a lethal natural order, or you're not killing them with a lethal green sun for crater hoof, or you're not doing something unfair like that, um, you're able to produce a 5-5 and just gain a lot of value. Um, it probably was more right a little bit ago because all the Bolt decks and the Abruptly decks could not interact with it at all. Um, I Like Bug Delver uh, struggles, um, you produce Death Touch Wolves and just run them over, and they have no way to remove it besides Liliana the Veil. Um, and so it was really just it was a call against what you want to play against. Uh, Miracles as well actually has a hard time dealing with this card because if they don't deal with it immediately, you don't need to play any more cards for us the game. Do you currently play this card in your deck? I currently do, um, and it might not be entirely correct if I expect to play against like storm decks all day long, but it's been good for me, um, and it's it's great to have that threat post board when you bring out your natural orders. Just having that that late game that really is a a good way to dump your mana. What do you use for your wolf tokens? So currently, <laughs> so I've got a couple options right now. I've been using uh, Terminator tokens. With that child actor, what's, uh, what's his name? I don't know. You'd have to have Sean were here. He'd be all over this one. Yeah, I can't remember. Like, they're really goofy child actor tokens. Sure. But I've also got a whole set of Hulk Hogan tokens I just ordered. All right. Um, and so they're actually pretty entertaining as well. Um. So I was playing at this event. Uh, it was for a Winamox Pearl event, and I had runs from Packmaster mainboard, and we were able to play it multiple times that day. And every time I played it, a judge had to be called. Because <laughs> I'm, <laughs> for those who don't know, I'm playing the deck entirely in German. Um, and so round one, I had a judge call. What's the Oracle text on runs from Packmaster? Round two, I had a judge call. What's the Oracle text on runs from Packmaster? Round five, I believe it was same judge. Judge, can we get the Oracle Text on runs from Packmaster? And it's, it's just kind of great to have that kind of experience, even though the card is not 
overly complicated or overly amazing. It's just it's a, it's a threat that most people don't expect out of the deck. I had Michael Majors call uh, for Oracle text on Force Field at uh, SCG <laughs> Atlanta. Now, I mean, how often do you get to play against Force Field? That's awesome. <laughs> That's life. Well, are, are you playing Beta Force Fields, or what are you playing? Or Unlimited, I mean, or...? Unlimited, unfortunately, but... Okay. So they're English, but they're that old wording. <laughs> yeah. Beta looks a lot better than Unlimited for Force Field, but... Well, either way, it's Force Field. Either way, it's still ridiculously expensive for what it is. And beautiful. Exactly. Uh, back to James Hess's deck, though. He's got this really interesting sideboard with Rurikthar, Progenitus, and Elder Scale Worm. So he's all in on natural order targets post-board. Um, which is fine if you like natural order, but I personally hate it. Because like now he's got three different things he can do post-board with natural order. And is that really better than just killing them with Crater Hoof? Uh, I mean, I don't know. It's one of those things where I'm not really fond of it, but if it works for him, it works for him. Yeah. Looks like you have four Cabal Therapies, and that's pretty much your only way to disrupt a Storm deck. Well, that's where those... Like, usually an Elf deck will have maybe one Natural Order target in the sideboard, and then you'll have, you know, maybe four Cabal Therapies and two Thought Seizes. Gotcha. You just want a little more ways to actually interact with the combo decks that you don't have much game against. Um, I think if there was an efficient Storm player at this event, he probably would have smoked everybody. Yeah, I don't see him having much problem here, um, especially just based on his top eight. I mean, he kind of can just plow through all those decks. Evan, while we're on subject, tell everyone about the tournament and uh, the, the the kind of work that had to go into it, what's going on currently with the uh, Metro Atlanta area legacy scene. Sure. Uh, first, Brandon, uh, with uh, I got a question for you. Like, I was playing Tezzerator on Sunday, and actually an elf player dropped Blood Moon on me. So that, is that something that happens? I'm n- I've never seen that. So I think the first instance of that was, like, six months ago. There was some guy in a Star City event that top-aided with, I think, like, three Blood Moons in his sideboard. Um, and I had, I had never seen that before. And it, it, it sparked some interest in the elves community, just as far as something that was so left-field. Um, and, you know, it was funny because, like, in the weeks following that, people were actually aware of Blood Moon as a possibility. And I, I had Miracles players that fetched themselves into oblivion trying to play around Blood Moon. Um, I, I mean, it's so rare, but when it works, it works well. So okay. I wouldn't say it's common, though. And then, and then in the final round um, at the Giga Tournament, uh, Wu-Tang had... Um, uh, I think Blighted Agent out. Um, and then he had uh, two Invigorates and a Berserk. Uh, and I think Land in Hand. Uh, and then James Cabal therapied him. Uh, missed. And then therapied him again with uh, Deathrite Shaman out. Uh, and stripped his two Invigorates. Um, and, or he cast the first Cabal therapy and then he cast another one. And he stripped the invigorates, and he had the opportunity to strip him for the berserk as well by sacking the death right. Um, yeah, I think Wu mentioned this to me actually. I didn't realize there was invigorates in his hand too. Um, yeah. Then he passed, and then he top decked invigorate. Um, there's almost no reason to not strip it. Okay. Unless, I, I mean, it's 
Infect is just so much faster than you and so much more explosive that you kind of need to play really paranoid. Right. Like, you, like, Berserk is one of those scary cards because it makes any plus four effect lethal. Um, and a card like Invigorate in his hand doesn't do that. So if he draws a second Invigorate for, you know, he's only got nine damage. But Berserk makes it ten, like, on the spot, and you're just dead. Right. Um, so, I mean, it's one of those things where it's you have to hedge your bets. Um, if he thinks he's going to need the creatures in play, maybe that's what he was going for. But, I mean, without knowing the situation, I think it's almost always wrong not to take everything relevant if you have a chance. Okay. Because you said he played two Cabal Therapies, right? So if he yeah. flashes one back, he still has one more sitting in the yard? I think he just hard. I think he just cast two, hard cast two of them. Like he cast one, and then he hard cast another, and everyone's like, "Oh man." Yeah. So if he's got two Cabal Therapies in his graveyard, right? But kinda, have to sacrifice the creatures. I think you kind of have to use one. Yeah. But I mean, then again, it's 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 you know I don't know the situation, so if it made sense in his head, it made sense in his head. Yeah, totally. But. Um, like, the only debate I see is whether or not you think you're going to need the creatures in play. Right. That's what I was thinking. He had some sort of plan behind it. If you can't win the game after the flashback, maybe you need to just take the risk. Right. Um, so, uh, going on to Andrew's question was going on to uh, the legacy scene and how it's going and Building and whatnot. Um, Giga Tournament was $30 entry, and we had uh, dual lands across the top eight. Um, skipping. Yeah, you also notably had 48 players. Yep, and we had 48 players at $30 entry. We skipped Plateau, unfortunately, and Tyaga. Um, but then they were re-entered into the prize pool because we had a great turnout. Um, so ninth and 10th collected. Uh, Plateau and Tyaga. Uh, the tournament was basically promoted for about a solid month and a half, I would say, in that realm. Uh, they were in those, uh, those feeder events, right? They wanted to give you buys yeah. if you did well at local weekly events? Exactly. So uh, that was kind of an idea that we kicked around um, with the store owner, and he thought it was great. I think it was Sean's initial idea. Um, and basically, like, people started coming out a little more for the weeklies. Uh, a couple people collected buys. Um, it was, if you went, I believe, 4-0, you collected four points. Uh, and if you went 3-1, and one, you collected one point, And it was a total of five to get a buy for the first round. And then they did not stack. Um, so it helped increase attendance for the weeklies, um, as well as just, I think, general interest into the tournament. Um, Atlanta has a strong community, I think, overall. There's a lot of people who actually have legacy decks around here. It's just kind of a matter of, I think, hurting for the stores, getting everybody in one spot and getting people hyped to come play. Um, so, yeah, I mean, we've done this, uh, the, the stream, our little stream thing that we do on Twitch, uh, twitch.tv backslash, um, TuskVision. Um, so, we streamed the whole event there. It was like an eight-hour stream. Um, we got commentators. All that really helps build our scene overall, I'd say. Um, we've really gotten 
a better turnout and just our numbers overall, just like we've seen the evidence. Um, and then when we do the tournament with the streaming, I think it pushes it as well. Made a pretty sweet play mat for the event um, for first place. Just made one, donated it for the first just to help get the tournament going. Um, a lot of people, like, you know, word of mouth, you know, a lot of people just came out, showed, you know, showed they want to come play. So we had a good turnout, I think, just from everybody getting involved into the scene and I think just properly promoting it and getting a bigger event going. I mean, I think one of the downfalls of Atlanta – for a while was not having a larger tournament, um, like a higher buy-in. So I think with this new quarterly system, uh, it's sparked a lot more interest um, versus kind of like the generic, okay, $5 weekly here at this store, $5 weekly at that store. Um, so we have two, almost we're, now we're getting a third store doing $5 weeklies here. So uh, having that, that quarterly is, is huge, um, and it promotes people coming out weekly. Um, and now we also have a monthly, um, and then it would be cool if we can get another store doing a quarterly system, so then, you know, we could have two going, and then we could have more of a competitive scene. Um, realistically, I think it would be great if, you know, there was enough larger-scale tournaments to lead to a, like, final – you know, grand tournament, you know, for the area to kind of create a more competitive scene. So I, I thought it would be interesting if, like, another store, you know, did a quarterly and then there's, like, a point system between the two quarterlies, you know, and they're spaced out so they don't interfere each other's dates, and then you have a, a big final one, you know. And for streaming that, I feel like things like – ideas like that, I think, kind of move into what SCG was trying to do or was doing, Um and uh, I think it kind of creates, you know, its own kind of, you know, encapsulated scene here. Uh, and I think if it just keeps pushing and we just keep doing what we're doing, more people are going to come travel, um, which will help make Atlanta more of a strong point for eternal magic. It seems like we have, you know, us and probably South Florida have the strongest uh, eternal scenes right now. And we're really gunning to kind of, like, coordinate with the Southeast, like, um, been talking with some Charlotte players, um, some of the guys in uh, South Carolina, um, uh, Casey, I want to say it is, um, and then there's some Dalton players and guys in Alabama, um, and then some Florida guys, and just kind of getting people to come play. Like James Hess, I actually played at the Atlanta GP, and I had mentioned to him about, you know, the tournament, and like, he said to me at that tournament that, you know, he's like, oh, man, thanks for telling me this. why I came up. I thought only ten people were going to show, you know. And I think if, if a lot of it – like, I wish we would have made flyers for the GP, like just small, like, quick kinkos, like, square cutouts and just, you know, get on to people. Because a lot of it I just feel like right now is kind of grassroots. Um, but at the same time, like, there's just – there's a lot of, like – there's a lot of community-orientated, like, movement going on at the same time right now that's starting to get more official. And us having this quarterly event is definitely a step in the right direction of kind of doing our own larger tournament scenes, you know. Now that we're able to get deck lists up, you know, online, I think that gets players more hype. Them seeing themselves on stream gets some more hype. Uh, interesting prize support. Um 
you know, I think I think all of this really helps. And I think consistency is probably one of the biggest things um, for a legacy. Um, just kind of keeping people engaged so they're continually going and people, you know, feel healthy about it firing and whatnot. So, and we've been doing pretty good in Atlanta. And at, like, Super Games, have actually been getting a lot of new players. Um, like, every week there's, like, we're still firing at like 10 to 14 there, um, sometimes a little higher. Uh, and, and it's like probably like six new guys every week, and then they'll show up like, you know, a month later, and then it kind of rotates. So it's good, man. And then Giga, of course, is doing like 20 to, you know, 30 range and then 15 on the slow nights. Um, so everything's going good. Uh, I think the quarterly is going to be a, a great step, though, for Atlanta in general. Anyway, so, I mean, I'd love to comment on that. Just, um, yeah, definitely. I'm not sure if it was the whole streaming thing or if it was just posting more about Legacy actually happening. Uh, but it definitely, there was a boost in turnout uh, when we did start streaming. Um, and I think part of it is, you know, you, you post twice or three times a week and people actually are aware that there's an event going on. And then you stream and you show that there's actually going to be people there and they're more incentivized to actually come out and play. Um, I think people just want to get excited about actually firing events with 20 people. Um, because for a while there in Atlanta, we couldn't get events firing with 10. Um, and that's, that's no fun for anyone because it's the same people over and over again, and, and people lose interest in actually going out week to week. I think the, same, like, the exact same thing is happening where I'm at right now, where we certainly have you know, 50, 60 players that could come out on any given night. Um, but the problem is just making them want to come out. Um, and I, I think you guys know in Atlanta, it only takes one or two bad weeks. Um, you can go from 30, and then you have a week of 15, and no one wants to go out for 15 people anymore. And so the next week, you're 15 again, and then you're 10, and then you It's cyclical in that regard, And that as soon as you have a, a bad experience, you don't want to go out again. Um, so, I mean, again, I'm not sure if it was the stream that really did that, or if it was just making people aware that events were firing and people were getting excited about it. Um, like I don't know what the what the draw is if people really are excited about oh, I'm gonna get on a stream I'm gonna play in front of people on the internet um, or if it's a matter of local players actually seeing that legacy is actually going to happen. Yeah, um, I'm not sure which aspect is is greater in that regard. If there's real excitement about playing in front of people, I mean that's never really excited me. But I, I understand some people do like to have their you know their their internet fame essentially. Um, even if it's just 50 people watching or, or 20 people watching. Yeah, I mean, look, so we have Atlanta Magic as, like, the big Facebook group here or whatnot, you know, which has, like, I don't know, a thousand-something or, you know, whatever amount of people in the group um, more or less interested in Magic in general. Uh, and then, uh, you know, a lot of the Eternal players are just, you know, it's, haven't had the best of time in the group. You know, it's more directed towards, you know, drafting limited, like weird spoilers, you know, about, you know, obviously cards that we don't play really. And it's just uh, not really a place for Eternal Magic, long story short. So created the Atlanta Eternal Magic group, which is, uh, you know, anyone can join. It's a private group, but, you know, we let anybody in and, um, that way people can kind of have their privacy with their, you know, magical lives. And we've got up to, like, 200 people in the group now, I believe. Um, and it's really helped in general. But one thing that I did notice 
um, was with the streaming advertising, there was a lot of people from Atlanta Magic, I believe, that were interested in being on camera and were watching the stream and I think just kind of got pumped. One thing about our meta is we have some – I mean, like, then I was playing, like – you know, when the stream was really going, I was playing, like, Juzom Stompy, you know, and I think people get hype about stuff like that, you know, and, like, Elf Mill, man, was playing, you know, like, he's playing Elf Mill and, you know, he brought out, you know, Notorious Tim – um, you know, there's just a lot of interesting decks, you know, that people are playing, you know, cool, you know, people are bringing out Maverick, you know, some decks you don't see all the time, you know, things like, you know, Sean's, you know, Red Humans deck, you know, um, so it's not miracles, you know, mirrors, you know, which people seem to complain a lot about, and, you know, there's a lot of Magic players, I personally, I'm not that interested in being on camera or whatnot, but, you know, I do know, like I was when I was in Minneapolis, I saw them streaming there, and I thought it was cool. You know, like being like if you're in from out of town, like in that regard, you know, it's like oh cool, they're streaming. You know, like it's it's something that like adds to the experience. And I noticed that, and I thought that was something that would really help Atlanta. And I definitely noticed personally, just you know from. You know, all, all the work I put into the stream with, you know, everyone else, you guys and the Tusk guys, like, there was definitely an increase after, like, work, like, week three, and then um, it consistently grew. Our numbers went from, like, you know, like, 12 to 15 to 17 to, like, 22 to, like, 25, 26 to, like, 31, 34, you know, and... um Continued at that, and then, like, had that thing where, like, we stopped streaming, and then we went down to, like, 14 or something, like, for, like, two, three weeks in a row. And then, like, went down to, like, 12, and then went back up to, like, 15, 16, just random nights or whatnot. And then when the stream came back, we kind of started to climb back up. Um, but I did notice that the consistency was a huge issue. Um and then, like, I'm wondering if, like, just getting the stream information back out into, like, that general Atlanta magic was something that, like, you know, we, we benefit from. Like, the bigger point I want to make is that the legacy streaming kind of validates the whole event as a whole. Um, it makes it more real to people that just happen to see it or happen to see it posted. Because um, it makes it sound official, makes it sound exciting, makes it sound like it's a, a bigger thing than it really is. Um, because our, I mean, we're Atlanta is blessed with an abundance of local events. Um, you can go any night of the week, you can play a local event, and it'll likely be bigger than any of the legacy events. Uh, if you want to play standard, modern, or draft, you're going to fire an event every single day. Um, and so when you add that extra element of streaming, you you kind of separate legacy from the rest of them, and you kind of give it more of a purpose. Uh, you, you give it more of a, I don't know what the right word is, but you, you, you give it more of a presence in that regard. Um, and, you know, I'd like to try it around here. Um, I'm in the process of picking up better equipment for streaming uh, Smash events, actually. Um, but the thing with Smash events is that it's all local people that are interested. Uh, it's kind of the opposite spectrum from Legacy in that there's an abundance of streams, um, and so the market's oversaturated, and there's no incentive to watch uh, random local events. Whereas with Legacy, there's kind of a shortage right now in Legacy, um, and so any kind of Legacy streaming is regarded as a big thing 
across you know the world or whatever. That's you don't just get local players interested. You also get people that are out of state, and you get people that are just watching from across the country. Um, and so it, it makes it a little more exciting, a little more real when people see that you have 100 viewers and you're, you know, I'm going to be on camera with 100 viewers is, uh, is, a, is a little bit more exciting as far as my incentive to, dr- to drive an hour, an hour and a half in Atlanta traffic. Uh, one thing with, like, the legacy crowd, I think, is, like, I've noticed that they don't really want, I mean, some of them seem to really want cash or they just want cards. Um, and it kind of, in the, I don't know if, like, legacy players are really, like, completely interested in winning stuff as much as they want to actually just play um, and get notoriety for doing well with the deck that they've, you know, played a lot with and practiced with. So I, I think that, like, like, I think optimally, like, cards and stream are really good with the legacy crowd. Like, high-value cards and, and like, streaming – Really helps, um, and then I think I think cash is great too. There's a lot of players that seem seem to want cash, um, but like for I, I mean like for me like with cash, it's just like well I'll just go work my job, you know, and like just work more. It's just about making money, you know. Like uh, playing for cards like makes it more like it kind of fits the hobby idea for me personally. Um, it seemed like there's a good amount of players. I think, Andrew, you mentioned that you were, you know, you were real happy about, you know, winning a dual land like it was cool, you know. Store credit is just like this arbitrary number sometimes. You're just like, I don't know what to get or whatever. Sometimes it's nice to get handed a mox or a dual land and, you know, feel good about that. Um, I think that notoriety from the stream uh, is strong with a lot of legacy players that, you know, are interested in making a name, you know, the same players that are stoked to see their name and their deck list posted online. Um, I mean, that goes back to just validating the entire experience. Exactly. You, know, you have something in your hand, it's, it's tangible and it's real, and it, it's something that you actually won and you worked for. Um, so it actually makes the event all more important to you. Uh, it's it's kind of unique to Magic in that regard. Um, I know the stores around here are all really, really crappy as far as price support goes. It's kind of just a Virginia thing in general, I think. Um, but Atlanta's blessed with a lot of competition, and Super Games kind of pushes the, the bar for competition as far as prize payouts go because they have the expendable um, cash flow to do that. Uh, they can afford to take a hit on a tournament because their main market is online sales. Um, and so they, they kind of boost the entire region as far as making prices better, making event payouts a little more interesting. Um, so, like, for example, here, I mean, it's a $5 local event, and it only pays out credit just split between the top whatever, um, which is, is perfectly fine, but it's when you're only firing 10-minute events, that's not actually uh, something that incentivizes people to really play for, for cash. Um, and there is that demographic that wants to do that. Um, so, I mean, maybe... Maybe playing for duels is, is more interesting in that regard. I mean, even if it's the same monetary value, the the physical cardboard makes you feel better about it. But it, it's kind of debatable, and so I, I'd like to see what the effect actually is. Yeah. Um, do you guys want to talk at all about, let's see, uh, expeditions? Foil cards suck. Yeah, barf. <laughs> Next topic. Yep. 
Um, I mean, if you guys want to talk about the expedition, so you can talk about how they were leaked, and how there's a there's a Wizards article right now about how leaking really is spoiling the entire experience for uh, the marketing team. That's interesting that they're not they don't have anything to do with it. So um, there was a post on uh, Daily MTG or whatever you call the mothership nowadays that basically said that this leak was excessive um, and that it, it ruined the whole buildup for the revealing of the, the new rule of and the whole colorless mana thing. Um, and they brought up the topic of, you know, that really hurts. It hurts third-party um, news sources. It hurts big-name players that actually would get those revealed otherwise. Uh, it hurts the way that the game is actually introduced to new players. Uh, they didn't get the chance to explain colorless mana in order... They didn't get the chance to actually build a lore uh, before the cards were just there. Um, and I thought that was kind of interesting, actually, to read in that the regard that, you know, that actually is a bigger deal than you think about. Um, and even if I don't care about standard cards and I don't care about new set reveals, I can get behind the whole community being kind of tied together in that regard. How, do, how are these cards leaking? Well, I mean, you know... That's something they don't want to admit, um, but it's 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 internal, right? It has to be for them to get out the door. It just seems like this is like when I see it, it just seems like a purposeful leak. Like leak, it doesn't seem like you know, like this guy's like standing in perfect position. Like they just have these like in a case by the front door. Like when you walk in and walk out of Wizards, like it just well, seems weird that some guy gets like pictures of each one, like steady camera shot. You know, motion blur, you know, like he's like, he's sitting there, he's getting a nice cropped shot of each one. It just and seems... A lot of them, I think, are like that. There are some, you know, leaks that are intentional and leaks that are actually there to build a little bit of hype around the product. Um, now, these expeditions, on the other hand, and these new, uh, what is it, Oath of the Gatewatch, or whatever it's called, cards, I mean, if you look at the photos, they're taken on someone's bed, they're taken, you know, back at home, so that maybe constitutes theft of property from wizards. Um, maybe some employee taking home test prints just to to photograph and actually give the the reveal of information. Yeah, um, the question is the, the question is what is the gain to them? Like, what does this actually do for that person? Oh, TMZ is giving them a massive cut. <laughs> but I mean, it's it's just an interesting topic, and I mean, it's it's a shame they were spoiled so early. But on the other hand, it doesn't really bother me. Um, all I get to do is see how bad these new foil expeditions look and question the decision to print Core Haven and Tectonic Edge and all sorts of random things like that. Well, there was that Core Haven uh, shortage recently, right? <laughs> yeah, I'm sure that was a thing in EDH. Uh, <laughs> but well, there's, know, there's a bunch of core cards, isn't that like? Uh, so oh my God, that dude, he's like a core, right? The core were a tribe in Zendikar, um, right. and they did come back, yeah. Uh, so, I mean, thematically, it sort of makes sense. But, I mean, if you look at Expeditions, on the other hand, they're kind of out of place anyways, because now I can open a strip mine in my draft pack. Like, this is... When is it? When was the last time you got to draft a strip mine in your deck? <laughs> yeah, you just blow some dude's head off, you know? You know? <laughs> I mean, I'm kind of excited for standard players to get to experience that. Yeah. You know, because well, the feel of a turn one strip mine in, you know, on your multi-four in limited. With the expedition strip mine. Exactly, exactly. Everyone's experience. So, I mean, if you want to talk about something, you can talk about the price. 
Because, um, like, the biggest, the catch of this set of expeditions is going to be the Wasteland for sure. Um, it's the one that has the most prestige, and it's miles ahead of the worst one. Um, if you want to call the worst one, like, Tech Edge, like, or even Corehaven because it has less play, or Eye of Ugin, um, like, there are some really, really crappy cards here that if you open them, you're not going to be excited about it. Like, opening a Forbidden Orchard is not exciting for a standard or a modern or even a legacy player. Um, and so the demographic for that is just going to be that that one vintage guy that thinks, for some reason, Exorcist are pimp. Um, <laughs> so this is what happens, though, is you've got the difference between the high end and the low, um, and that dictates pack prices and kind of dictates the value of the high end. Uh, so is this waistline going to be $400 $500? I mean, that's that's perfectly reasonable to expect. Uh, this is a second set, and it's going to be, you know, in printing for shorter duration with less packs in circulation because of the way the draft format works. Um, so it's just, you know, like, we've seen the settling of the Fetchlands. Um, I know, Evan, you opened, like, a Scalding Tar in the first week, and you sold it for, like, $400. Yeah, I sold it in 24 hours for, like, uh, 350 bucks. So, like, if you, if you look at it now, like, what is it right now? It's like two something, isn't it? I think. Right. I mean, I think they've they've definitely cooled once people realize that they're not as rare. Well, I think the other thing is is like Wasteland has like like I don't know like two other like different foil pictured cards. You know, yeah, like it's got um three promos actually. I think. Yeah, so I think it's, it's like promo, DCI promos and else. Um, I mean, and like you know. I said with Expeditions, it's like, what's the demographic, right? Like, I think Expeditions are more popular with modern players. Just like EDH. Yeah, like EDH too, but like if they can afford it, and that's 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 your higher level EDH players, right? That's not your local guy. Yeah. Um, and so the question is just where does this Wasteland go, or where does this, you know, Core Haven go? Or these really, really ugly looking filter lands and this mana confluence that no one cared about. Ugh. But it's you know it's it doesn't affect me because I'm not interested in it. I don't care about the foiling. I don't care about having an expedition in my deck. Um, they don't come in German or Russian. But it's always fun to just look at the price um, because the price ultimately will dictate how interested people are in trying to open them. Interesting to hear people complain about the prices and buy those cards. <laughs> you know, I mean, it's. You can't please everyone in Magic. There's always someone complaining. Yeah, it's amazing to look at because um, I'm, you know, I'm seeing other games now because I've been more involved in other games when I have more time to do so, and the communities are so much more pleased just to run events. Like it doesn't matter if the event is crappy or if everyone has to contribute to try and get the event going. They're just excited to play, um, and Magic doesn't have that. Magic has stores and it has people with overhead and it has expectations that come along with that. Um, the players expect great tournaments to be run. They expect great tournament organizers. They expect great prize support, and they expect to win something if they go 2-2. I mean, it's it's not like... They just feel entitled. Um, and it's, it's the same way with, you know, card payouts. I mean, I understand that Magic is an investment, and you want to make your money back. But it, it's become so financially oriented in that regard... And people now will complain about the difference in this. Like, you know, <laughs> ultimately there will be complaints about people opening Dust Bowls, and there will be complaints about people opening Forbidden Orchards. 
just because they're not excited about the financial value. It's yeah. Yeah. It doesn't affect me, but it's still it's a it's an aspect of the game that I have to deal with. Um, because I'm gonna have to watch people complain for the next couple months. I mean, what I find real interesting is like wizards, like new. This is like a new tool for them, you know. Like th- that's why, like they have this like this new way to get out cards now, and they're and they're it's like a way for them to milk stuff to the fullest, and it's a way for them to basically get out cards to the people that are crying about prices. It's, does it end with expedition lands, or do we go into you know? You know, wild man creatures or wild humans. I don't know, you know. I mean, what's a fucking wild man creature? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's what you put your cavern on now. So it's, uh, it's really exciting. Sean, so it looks like you're joining us. We uh, we brushed through tournament events. We ran through the Gigabytes monthly event they're running. And we're talking about expeditions and how crappy they look right now. Yeah, that's a nice guy. <laughs> so yeah, they do look horrible. But to your point about the, it being an outlet valve um, for high-priced cards, I wonder. I'm not. I'm not. We could maybe get an uh, MTG value dork on here, like Rosenblade or somebody. But like, did Expeditions impact the price of Scalding Tarn, or did it just keep going up? You no, know? Ex- Expeditions don't impact the price because they don't add enough of the circulation. Yeah, and they're actually a, they're actually a different market, um, but that'll be Wizards' excuse, right? Is that it doesn't matter if we're printing five hundred dollar cards in booster packs, because the point wasn't to bring the price down. The point was to sell more packs. Right, right. And yeah. so they're not responsible for the value being so high, um, and people really can't complain that they're printing expensive cards because they're not even standard playable. Yeah, so, this is bizarre. The, the the idea of opening a standard legal pack, getting an ancient tomb, being 13 years old, not understanding that I can't cast, you know, some fucking warrior I just got out of the same pack with it is funny. Like, I wonder how many kids are going to just get game losses at F&M for playing ancient tomb. Or what's the other one? Is there a dust bowl? Well, I was excited to see. It's like we're going to have, you know, 10-year-olds playing strip mine now in their draft deck. Yeah, I mean, people yeah, learning about first experience with strip mine. It's pretty awesome because strip mine's awesome. But um, I mean, it's, it's it's one of those things where it's it's the next gimmick to sell packs because originally it was like mythics. They wanted to make mythics these mythic rare exclusive cards that you had to open a bunch of packs t- to really experience, right? Well, foils um, were the original. Foils are the original, but yeah, and then then mythic then. What, Zendikar Treasures, maybe? That was a gimmick? Were you around for that? I always felt like the Treasures were so far removed, though. Like, they were so rare. Uh, well, the actual... Uh, yeah, those were, they said, those were less than one per case. The the old battle... The actual Zendikar Treasures, right? I thought they were more rare than that, even. I thought they were, like, one per, like, ten cases. It was... They were rare. Yeah, that's a nice gun. <laughs> but I mean it's, it's just it's one of those things that this is the way that they're designing packs now this is the way that they're designing sets is to encourage people to buy more um, and if you need to make your play set you need to buy you know two cases or you need to buy three cases to get your play set of potential mythics and then you're just basically saying dealers because you know no no individual buyer or collector is, is buying two cases so 
Maybe so, it's a boon for a dealer. Maybe that's a it's a it's almost like a throw in for a dealer. It's like, hey dealer, you bought these two cases to crack for singles. Here's an extra two hundred and fifty dollar single you can sell. Thanks. Well, like, I mean, has set value really risen though? I mean if we look at old sets, like is is the value per box that much higher than it used to be? Oh. Yeah, uh, I don't think yeah. it really is as far as standard playable cards go. I know my lotus has risen. That's true, but yeah. it's not quite right. I mean, well, I guess, hold on. What was the value of a box of Magic when it first came out? Like, a box of Beta when it first came out? My experience starts, like, very late winter of 93. Or, sorry, yeah, late fall of 93. So going into Christmas with no Beta packs left anywhere in the New York area and unlimited packs being double MSRP. So they were, like... I think a retail on a pack was two ninety nine. I want to say that an unlimited pack was, and actually I take that back. I think an unlimited pack was like ten dollars. So, uh, and I we don't have revised yet, so it's unlimited packs, and I think nothing else. I don't even remember unlimited them. I don't remember my store even having unlimited starters in December of nineteen ninety three. Like they were gone. They couldn't yeah. get them. Uh, that that sounds right. I mean, but you're just parts. talking about a totally bizarre era where the distribution wasn't even fi- they didn't, they hadn't even really figured out how to distribute well, magic yet. The distribution that and there's also no secondary market that was really established at that point in time. Um, you know, if you look at nowadays, it's like every box that comes out, every set that comes out, the average value of a box is like 125 to 150 percent of the actual box value. Or the, oh, the, of, the cards within it, right? Yeah. As far as the retail price goes, and that's about the limit you can really do, because anything more than that, and it sells more boxes, and then the price goes back down. There was um, was the third set of Return to Ravnica. I remember distinctly those boxes, where the box price reached a point that was, it was like seventy-five bucks a box or something. What was the last set? Dragon's Maze. Is that right? Uh, well, the last uh, set was Battle for Zendikar, but it was... Well, the Return to Ravnica block. Yeah. The, uh, whatever the last set of that was, that that box price, like, very shortly after the release, was nothing. It was, like, $80. You know, it was it was ridiculous. Yeah. Right, and so that impacts sales. I mean, no one wants to open those packs anymore. But I didn't, the bigger point is that there's, there's a limit on the potential value of a set um, just because the value of a set is dictated by the cards within it. Um, and if the set value is too high, then the market will buy enough to actually equal that out. Um, and I don't really think that's changed over the years. I mean, if you look back at, like, you know, I don't know, let's go back to, like, World Wake and stuff. Like, is the box value significantly higher then than it is now as far as related to the sale price of a box? The only thing that affects box sale prices, this is a strange phenomenon, is like old boxes where the value of the cards inside are not equal to the to the retail of the box. Sure. The box is still worth more because worth more because it's sealed and you have grognards who want to like draft Mirage. Despite the fact that a sealed box of Mirage actually has no value because you're un, you're you're likely to pull one Lion's Eye Diamond and like that is the only card in that set that's over ten dollars, you know? But that's that's more of like a collector's value. Yeah, exactly. So it has to be old enough to have nostalgia. So I don't think Worldwake has nostalgia. It has Jace, right? Right, right. And I'm talking about, like, current set, like, current box, whatever's the newest thing, right? 
there's a set cap on the value of that box. Right. As far as what you're actually going to open. Yeah. And that changed when Mythics were printed. Right. The value all shifted into the Mythics. Instead yeah. Distributed throughout the rares and the uncommons. Right. The value shifted into the Mythics made all the rares cheaper. Right, right. So, like, just as an overall effect. Um, and so what that's done is that, you know, that would be fine if the Mythics weren't the most playable cards in the box. Because yeah. nowadays, I mean, well, you used to buy, you know, a set of rares, right? And the rares would go in price, but they still were just rares. Right. So they were still open enough you could actually bring the price back down. I don't know enough about Standard to know, you know, are, are three out of four Mythics always playable? or I'm, I, don't, I don't really keep up enough. I, mean, I see the prices, so that gives me a hint. Oh, this card is... This is a $36 Mythic. It must be a playable standard Mythic, right? Right, but, it, I mean, it's always been higher than the rares. Um, yeah. If they're, if they're playable. Um, and so Expeditions have done the same thing. Like Battle for Zendikar, you put the Expedition into the box value. Because oh. if you're going to open one Expedition every, like, what is it, three or five boxes, I think it was, mm-hmm. um, that is now included in that value. Yeah, I'm never going to open a pack of... Battle for Zendikar. If I could open a $200 card every six boxes, mm-hmm. then the average value of those boxes has just gone up. Well, that's great news for people who I hate, but... I exactly. <laughs> but, I mean, like, the real point of this is that, you know, they're they're shifting the value into other mediums. Um, originally, it was they're going to shift it into foils, and they're going to shift it into you know, mythic rares, and now it's in expeditions that are not even related to the current standard set. Yeah, yeah. So will that decline the price of everything else in the in, in the box? I mean, it, it has already as far as Battle of the Underdark is concerned. Okay. I haven't really been following it because that set was head cheese as far as it, uh, Eternal goes. I, yeah. I was actually happy that really none of the Mythics save the Ulamog. I believe the Ulamog is the only Mythic that I bought. Um... Is that right? Is there a pl- well? No, though I didn't buy the Gideon. Not that he's like the most awful thing in the world, but he's not good enough to. Spend I think 30. he's the most legacy playable though, so I don't think he would have bought anything else. Well, I just he's thirty bucks now, and I'll he'll be six dollars when he rotates. So right, right. Yeah, so I, I think I actually held off on him. I did buy Nulamog. I bought a bunch of Painful Truths, and I bought. And then I, every a lot of the other things were really cheap. The uh, the you can't play even guy, he's like he was like two dollars for a Russian one. What's his name? Voidwinner. Not that he's uh, good, but Voidwinner, yeah. Yeah, everything else was. I don't. I don't think I spent more than like the Ulamog Russian was almost thirty bucks, and then I think I spent fifty bucks total on that entire set in Russian. So, so looking at the cards now, there's only been a few spoilers, but there's anything interesting right now. Uh, you pointed out that Sphinx of the Final Word. Yeah, this, I think the Sphinx has legs maybe in Vintage. Um, oh, did you get your Kev Walker signs back? Uh, some of them, yeah. Did you uh, send through Paul Luxton, or These these are on the top of my pile. I'm still waiting on mine, so... Um, yeah, I thought that that, uh, that Sphinx looked pretty good, you know, as far as a managerian sink and... Um, filling some role in some big blue deck that wants to play a long game. Uh, 
I think its comparables are like I think it's the best comparable is probably Consecrated Sphinx, and that's what one cheaper, um, and doesn't necessarily can be countered. Yeah, it can be countered, which is a bummer. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I uh, this is a five five, whereas Consecrated Sphinx is a four six. Is that correct? Uh, yeah. I forget. I believe it's Yeah, that being the operative thing, right? It, it, it can win in combat with a, um, yeah, 4-6, right? Yeah, so, so that, that's a big So as far as other cards are concerned, there's really only one other that sparks my interest, and that's, uh, Return. Yeah, me too. It's a three-mana, uh, Devoid. Uh, essentially, it's an instant speed pyroclasm. Hey, if you aren't speaking, mute your mic. Because we're getting, I'm getting an echo. Are you getting an echo? That's a uh, yeah. There I just did. That's off of um, uh, Evan. How about now? Uh, now it's good. Right now, yeah. Yeah, now you're good. Anyway, so Kozlux Return is a it's an instant speed pyroclasm effect uh, that is notably colorless. Uh, so it's not really like, like relevant for Legacy because we have better options. Uh, but for Modern, this means you can actually hit... Uh, you can hit... Uh, what do you call it? You can hit Core Firewalkers. You can hit Wargrack Champions. You can hit... Uh, whatchamacallit? Eh, it might be good against Mother of Runes. I don't know. Maybe the decks in Legacy that like 12 posts wanted to kill a whole bunch of creatures. Do you typically even care about Mother of Runes? Okay, so that's another thing as well. It's got a second ability on it. Uh, whenever you cast an Eldrazi creature spell with converting that cost 7 or greater, you can exile it and essentially cast it again to deal 5 to each creature. Yeah. Oh, I'm looking at it now, yeah. Yeah, that, that's got some legs. I tried to, um, I tried a post variant a few weeks back. Uh, how long ago was that when I was playing around with that, uh, maybe Shoot, it's probably more than that now. Maybe a month and a half ago, I was playing with the X spell from Origins with Spell Mastery, um, Animus Awakening, and I was playing four of those, four Sylvan Scrying and four Ancient Stirrings, and it was just, it was almost entirely green with a little bit of red. Um, so maybe, because I, I was playing actual Red Sun Zenith and Fireballing people, and uh, yeah, a little more red base than the average cloud post deck. Yeah, so this thing I'm looking at it now would make a nice sweeper. I want to say I had fire spout in the sideboard of that deck. Um, it seems fine um, as an alternative to fire spout. I think it helps the bonfire the damned engine too with um, top combo. Yeah, I'm trying to read this last part. Oh, if you do, okay. So if you cast it for the alternate mode, you get a you get a fu- inferno. Okay. So also it's, it's it's a caster on the Eldrazi spell. Uh, awesome, they can't. You don't actually cast, yeah. That's sweet. Um, so the most obvious place is Modern Prime. Um, yeah, fuck Modern for now. But I think the secondary is is your your red based post deck and Legacy. But otherwise, it doesn't really affect me. It doesn't really suit me as better than anything else we already have. Check out this Nissa. It's a pretty. Ch- Cheap Planeswalker. One green green, loyalty three, Planeswalker Nissa. 
uh, art straight off the Photoshop scrap heap. Um, plus one, put an 0-1 plant into the, onto the battlefield. Minus two, put a plus one plus one counter on each creature you control. Minus seven, uh, regal four, no wait. Draw X cards where X is the number of lands you control and you gain X life. It's a pretty cheap Planeswalker in green. That's a turn two Planeswalker. Green isn't that much else as far as Planeswalkers go. Yeah, not not for three. Uh, there was Domri Rad. He was three, but he was red. I guess all you're getting is shitty 0-1 plants. That's not that impressive. Seems like you're trying to like a, some sort of sack outlet, you know. How about a Veteran Explorer deck? Yeah, like you know, attrition. Where you could flash the plants back to Cabal Therapy, right? Yeah. So I guess the comparison really is between this um, and then the four mana Garuks. Uh, Garuk Relentless that actually functions as a removal spell, and Garuk Wildspeaker that actually does have an overrun ability. Yeah, that sort of is equivalent to the minus two on this. And rant, I mean, Garuk is effectively two if you have four, right? Right. Plus he one, yeah. Plays for himself, but um, I mean, the question would be: Is this better than those in that kind of context? Yeah, the only thing is, it's just it's unique in its place as being a three mana uh, green Plainswalker. I guess is is um, the only reason maybe you'd look at this. But the plus, yeah, the plus one is just really, really weak. You don't even really get a blocker out of it. The plant doesn't really, you know, it's not even like one of those O one Eldrazi turds. It can't even make mana. You know, uh, it's green. I don't know. Yeah, it's tough. Uh, that's yeah. the biggest thing. Yeah. See, I guess, I guess, I keep saying, I said Veteran Explorer, but um, I don't think this ever lives to see its minus seven. That's a long time. And then my issue is, is you're rarely, if you've sacrificed a Veteran Explorer, you're typically not at three mana. You usually, like, have a land, you had a land to cast the Explorer, maybe you flashed it back. And you got two lands, so you're usually at four anyway. So it's kind of a weird spot. And you fight with Liliana, I guess, also at three, which is pretty good in a veteran explorer deck. And then you're echoing it. Um, Echo Mage. Pay Echo. How's that? Cast Avalanche Riders. Go to my next upkeep. Pay Echo. Cast Raven Familiar. Pass the turn. Go to my upkeep. Pay Echo. I hear a little bit of Echo. This is going to make for some riveting fucking audio. Um, This Chandra follows in the great lineage of shitty Chandras. It's a thousand mana and you get uh, two red 1-1 elementals. Or three 1 elementals. You do wheel. Have you seen this Chandra? Yeah, it's uh, six mana. Um. <laughs> yeah, that's the, that's the bad part. I mean, you can minus it to Pyroclasm. How much is the Miracle Wheel that nobody played? Five? Five, yeah. All right, well, that sums that up then. Although, I guess your opponent doesn't wheel. Eh, never mind. That card's terrible. Um, 
this Kozilek is terrible. It doesn't have Annihilator, and it doesn't kill anything when it comes into play. He sucks. <laughs> uh, this thing that makes an octopus is pretty terrible. Why does he need Annihilator? He has Menace. I don't even know what Menace does. I mean, I think the octopus is interesting as far as the effect of, like, basically cyclonic rifting your opponent. Return all non-land permanents to their owner's hands. For five yeah. mana. Dude, I mean, you cast a spell. Is this Kicker again? Oh, okay, it's not Kicker. Okay, so if I played my top, I get to play this for a slight discount or a Lotus Petal or whatever. I get a, a whopping one-mana discount. So that's not the most interesting card, but I was talking to some guys locally here, and the question is, what can they do with this mechanic? Because, I mean, ultimately, they're going to try and push it for Legacy. Because they, they seem to like doing that recently, just pushing these kind of mechanics, like Miracle or like yeah. into a Legacy playable card. It's a Lotus Petal. That mechanic just fucking screams Lotus Petal, right? Or, or LED or any, any zero-mana... Like if they make a ritual, for example, right? Uh, yeah, it's it's just a matter of seeing like what can they push with this card or with this with with this mechanic. I'm sorry. Yeah, I guess this isn't the best example, but I don't think I'm playing this over Cyclonic Rift though, Evan, because it's a fucking no. sorcery. It's a sorcery. It's the problem. Yeah, no, I agree. Uh, I I love Cyclonic Rift in post, but. Um, yeah, that this this thing is kind of a shitbox. This pilgrim is pretty sick in life deck. Uh, the problem is life deck is just not good. Um, but it's interesting that now they have Diamond Valley on a creature, which is a unique effect in life deck. All of the valley effects were lands, so it's kind of interesting that now you can um, your valley effect is cavernable because she's of course a cleric. So and she also. Just looks like they actually repurposed the art from Stoneforge Mystic and just opened up the Photoshop file and put like a light effect in the upper left hand corner and changed the sword around. Well, it looks like they had two or three different options for that Stoneforge promo they printed. <laughs> yeah, I'll bet you're right. No, this is just the alternative. Yeah, it just got rejected. Awesome. What a deal. Um, also Perfect. unique in Life.Deck, this thing removes Jace. Like. It was always irritating to have infinite life and lose to Jace. This thing I can vial in and then sack another cleric and actually exile Jace. What a deal. I'm sure all the, all the life.deck aficionados listening to this echoing podcast would be fucking thrilled. Um, great value. <laughs> there was a, a good land I saw. Uh, it is a land, I believe it is the De Combres de Puerta de Mers. Uh, there's only the French one spoiled here, but essentially it says uh, if you have no cards in hand, two diamond. Uh, well, oh, I, I missed the start of the cast. What are you guys calling colorless mana that has to be colorless? Gold. Yeah. <laughs> you don't want to call it colorless. Is there an official like nerve term that they're using? Are they call it just colorless mana. Waste mana. Or they call it pearls and then call it anything else to inherit mana? I think waste. Okay. So it's wasteful mana. I like gold because it, it doesn't really actually make any sense. It makes no sense. Yeah. All right, so two and one gold mana, tap. If you control no cards or if you have no cards in hand, draw a card. 
so that card to me has text. I don't know exactly what shop variant I would put this in, but there there has to be a stompy deck that I can put this in where I was thinking Null Brooch came to mind right off the top of my head. You know you guys know what Null Brooch does? Yeah, you uh you got no cards in hand, two colorless Two gold tap. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah. So um, actually, you can use colorless. You don't need gold. It's just a two tap. Discard your hand. Counter target non-creature spell. Uh, yeah. Yeah. So so null brute gets you hell bent immediately, and it's a counter. It's a counter spell. And then this thing you can main phase and draw. Just draw a card. Um, which is. Pretty cool, or I, that was the first thing that came to my head. The other, the other card that came to my head was Bottle Cloister, because you're hell bent on your opponent's turn, right? Is that right? I've read that card in a while. Bottle. Yeah, you're considered to be hell bent. I believe, believe you are. Yeah. At the beginning of each opponent's upkeep, exile all cards from your hand face down. Yeah, so you are in fact hell bent. Devin, can you mute your microphone when you're not talking? What was that? <laughs> no, I, I, just, I just moved a bag out from by my computer. Can you uh, mute your <laughs> microphone when you're not talking? Oh, yeah. Great. Um, so I think it's interesting to know that there's a lot of colorless sources in Legacy, uh, or gold sources in Legacy. So it's actually fairly easy to actually activate these. You've got like Wasteland Port, you've got Ancient Tombs, you've got City of Rast or um, City of Traders, I'm sorry. <laughs> um and you Cavern of Souls. Cavern of Souls, yeah, that's notably colorless or generic gold. Um that's gonna confuse me all day long. <laughs> but yeah, I know. That's what I want to do right now too. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, it's going to be confusing trying to verbalize or, or to your opponents exactly how you're paying the mana cost of something that requires gold and or colorless, right? I think yeah. they're going with colorless and generic, and I think that's what they're trying to do, because, like, it is technically generic mana, but no one ever calls it that. So. Yeah, and you never say that. You never cast an Elvish Visionary by going, I will tap this forest in this forest. I will use a green mana to pay the generic cost and a green mana to pay the green mana cost because it's just implied. Kind of just tap all my lands and hope it works. Yeah, you usually just tap all your lands and you're like, Merp, that's water, red fucking hoof. And then your opponent just dies no matter what kind of colored mana you have. That happens a lot, yeah. yeah. Did, you watch my, did you watch my camera match? No, I haven't had a chance yet. Yeah, it's fucking humiliating. Against Hess? It's just against basic forest. I mean, it oh, yeah. could have been, you know. It doesn't matter what he does at that point. I mean, if, you, if you're able to produce basic forest, you can pretty much function underneath Blood Moon. Yeah, he never had to fetch for basic forest in any match. He just had it. So, Which is fine. I guess, like, I'm crying about it now a little bit, but I guess the chance of him having basic forests, he had two in his deck. 7%, about... Which is probably it's probably not much higher for me to have a turn one blood moon, so which I had both games. So Right, and that's notably with you on the play. Uh, yeah, I was on the draw for the match, so 
So uh, had I been on the play, had I been on the play, I don't even know if it really would have mattered because he just had to force regardless. So yeah, like on the draw or on his play, he gets his ten touches and his two basics, and so he's got a little bit better chance to actually get underneath you. But um, it's still a little rough for that deck sometimes. I'm trying to read the rest of this spoiler, but a lot of it's um, not been spoiled in English yet. Mythic spoilers, really. These other lands look terrible. There's a land that makes a makes a rainbow mana when it comes into play. There's a land that we tapped. Spells. Oh, the mirror pool. Yeah. yeah, that's about the only thing actually interesting. The rest are just common mana fixing lands. Uh, mirror pool three to copy. Again, like I just keep going back to post, but God, you know you're. You're really having to choose between a lot of good lands right now in post as one of as utility lands. You know, like to the point where even stuff like Maze of It is getting cut. So it's notable that this mirror pool sacrifices itself to activate. And it comes into play on it comes into play tapped. Um, so you're not even like loaming it back into play effectively. I think it's too slow for a post, or it's just, there's no space for it. Could be wrong, but... Like, the best it does is what? Just kind of function as a counterspell? Yeah, I think Evan's right. This is a shit pox. I didn't realize it sacrificed itself. Like, I was actually considering that you could do the two and the gold over and over again, and I still didn't think it was playable. So, if you also have to stone rain yourself, this is a piece of shit. Uh, can it copy the other guy's spells? Hold on. Uh, oh, wait, never mind. It's you control. Or wait. Yeah, it's just... Yeah, yeah, yeah. it's a spell you control. All right, it's so it's not even our spell. Yeah, I thought I was going to say at least, hey, crop rotation, Rur, gotcha, like, fuck you, right? Come up and play tapped. Yeah, or like crop rotation, copy your Emrakul asshole, like that, but that doesn't even work. It has to be you control. Yeah, I mean, that's just EDH fodder. All right. Um, what about this red green ally elf advisor mutant uh, ox legend? It's like explore, and then I don't know. Uh, yeah, you may play. It is it's exploration. Red green bounce a land. Something gains trample. It's a four four for four. Have you seen this thing? Is it yeah. worth being able to bounce a cradle? Probably not. Um, I mean, at that point, you're already winning. Right. If you if you have a four mana legendary like this in play, you're probably in good shape. Right. This thing I mean, doesn't actually. The corner case is when you need to like hard cast a crater of, I guess. Uh huh. But even then. Yeah, this thing seems like it being a legend is actually kind of a liability. I think. Yeah, and that's almost exclusively a legacy thing. Right, yeah. So that legendaries are bad. This is uh, exclusively a le- legacy and vintage podcast. Right, and so, like, they can print these cards with the intent of having them be in EDH and having them be in other formats where it doesn't actually make a difference. Yeah, yeah. But when they convert to legacy, it it starts to cripple the card. Right. Even Tassiger, you know, yep. would have yeah. been great um, if he wasn't a legendary. But they reprinted the, the... How many times have they printed a land that's just make it colorless and then one tap, 
this land make any color. Literally, I've seen that land like ten times. This one, this new one's called Unknown Shores. How many of those do you fucking need? Like, why can't you? Isn't it Rupture Spire or whatever the last one? Shores is the reprint. Um, shores, Unknown Shores. So I think this is like the third iteration of this card. Of, of the exact name, or the, I think oh. that card's been some other name. A thousand the same before, right? functional card, I believe. Yeah. A third different type of it. Oh, my bad. All right, so it was in Theros as was, yeah. on Shores. Okay. But, I mean, they're just trying to, you know, reinvent the wheel as far as naming it for the current block. I hate I hate Wizards sometimes. Like and it's... They're and thematically making it fit, and it doesn't need to be there. But, um... I mean, I think Wizards is at the point now where they're running out of things to do with these lands. Oh, big time. I mean, the fact that we've gotten, like, the coastal tower for the fucking 30th time shows me that they have. I think it also placates the EDH crowd that, like, can't afford a Pundra. Now they have seven coastal towers. Shimmering Grotto, that's the other one. we got Shimmering Grotto, one, two, three. We have four, four reprintings of Shimmering Grotto. Now we need a second reprinting of Unknown Shores. I mean, like, if you look at their lands, like, they're reprinting, well, they're making new... Coming to play tap lands for you know just common rarity. Yeah, um, coastal tower. That's what I'm referring to as a coastal tower. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, but they're just they're running out of things to do. How, all right. Now I'm curious. How many coastal towers have we gotten over the years? Let me see. That's just wizards in general, though. I mean, they're they're at that point in magic where there's not much more you can really do without it being called. This is just a variant on kicker. This is just a variant on convoke. Or this is just a variant on you know some random ability that they already have. Um, and lands especially, just there's no more flexibility for this. Without making something strictly better than a, a shock or a duel? Yeah, I mean, it's like you can't keep pushing the bar, right? And so how many ways can you print the same card? Um, and they did a nice job with those those lands that check if you have two basics. I mean, at least that's different enough that I care about it being new. Yeah. It just makes me glad I don't play standard. Like, having to buy these lands is kind of miserable. Um, because, well, I guess these are common, but... Having to buy the rare Tango lands, knowing that they're they just are literally shit, but you have to have them to compete. Is and they're like seven dollars or something for a lot of them. I don't know. Yeah, and you need a set of these shit lands that are literally going to be a dollar after they rotate. Standard hey, is super expensive right now. Did they spoil the man lands? Just the red white one. Yeah, it's a uh, double strike two one. A double strike two one for four. Four to yeah. Hey, you know, it's still land. Um, Spire's Needle. Man, four's a lot to activate this thing. That's a shame. I was kind of hoping those would be good. Huh. Oh, well. Wait, so we're going to get another one or no? Only the red-white one's been spoiled? We got we got uh, green-blue and we got black. We got dead guy and... And Madness, right? And now we got... I don't want to call it Boros. We got uh, Goblin Legionnaire. So you think we'll get another Manland in this set? Because there are only two sets in the block, right? Yeah, I think two. Yeah, that's yeah. right. So we're, we're due for one more. Hmm. I wonder what color combination it will be. Am I supposed to know that? Is it a given that it will be some color combination? Will it be. Well, what's the last? 
We have we have Dead Guy and we have Madness. We have yeah, blue green and black white. So what's the next in that rotation? That's um. So it could either be Volcanic Island. Yeah, it could be Volcanic Island or, or it'll be Evan's dream of having a Bayou Manland. I'm begging for it. Hey, make your Bayou Manland. What would you want it to be? Uh, <laughs> I think uh, something where you could sack the creature or uh, sack the land to uh, have player sack a creature. I think something like with an attrition field would be good. Um, something with, you know, card, you know, discard, you know, giving you card advantage. I think something along those lines of, you know, sacrificing would be cool. Um, I, I, I would prefer it not to be just some life linker, which I'm assuming it's going to be. Well, green black. They're going to historically get, like, uh, win the dies or... You know, win the stars, draw a card, or it's going to have death touch or something relevant like that. Um, yeah. Because they're, they're just repeating themselves with these abilities now. There's not much else you can really do, so it's, it's, it's okay. But I kind of want to see green, black, and then when you activate it, you get, like, plus one, plus one to your team or something. Because then at least it's, it's a little different. Bad moon. Yeah, like if it if it bad moons like your green and black creatures or something. Yeah. Um, so you guys want to talk about uh, GP Seattle, um, or uh, GP Atlanta, GP everything? Well, I was notably absent for Seattle and Atlanta, um, just as a result of having moved away. So I unfortunately missed those, uh, but. I heard they were pretty cool. Yeah, I didn't make it to Seattle. I know Sean did. Um, I did go to GP Atlanta. Um, Legacy fired good. Um, I think most of the events were running, like, in the 40 range, just the side events. Um, not like their typical, uh, what is it, Legacy classics or whatnot, SCG does. Um so that was nice. Uh, I went like two and two and three and one, like pretty consistently. Cyclonic Rift, some Elves players. Um, it was pretty good. A uh, lot of actually a pretty good meta uh, overall. Atlanta's, you know, has a pretty good turnout. A lot of people traveling from Florida. I noticed uh, we had Vintage Fire. I think all the time at like. Uh, 13 or 14, I think 13 and 14, you know, two two events firing, I believe. Sean would know, though, better. I only got to play in one because for some reason they overlap Vintage and Legacy. Um, so basically towards the last round, um, I, you know, would have to drop out of Legacy to go play Vintage um, both days on Saturday and Sunday um, for the second Legacy event. So that was a little frustrating that they did overlap, but uh, it was good. They had a good turnout. Uh, some local players and some dudes had traveled. It was cool. Um, Sean, you got anything about uh, GP Seattle or Atlanta? Uh, GP Seattle, I had buys, and then I lost to Burn. 
and then I got frustrated because I lost to Burn, and I didn't I didn't want to play anymore. Um, I think I won my next two. Then I drew with a Death and Taxes player who had to get the Oracle for. I'm pretty sure every card in my deck. I'm pretty sure even the Urza Saga Island confused him because it was double sign in Korean, and he just wanted to confirm that it wasn't an artifact land. I literally think we had we had 15 judge calls for Oracle text, and we drew. And unfortunately, in that game, I couldn't close him out fast enough with Tezzeret because I he had I believe he revoked. Tezzeret. He actually just said Revoker naming Tezzeret, so I had to call a judge again to get him to clarify. Since you can't legally name Tezzeret, since that magic card doesn't exist, so I called the judge, just being a miser, because I didn't really want the game to come down to me activating Tezzeret and then getting into a fight with him about did he name Big Tezzeret or Little Tezzeret. I just thought it was a no-win, and it would have been kind of a scummy thing to try to even fight over. So Anyway, long story short, we, we went to time, also, I, the only way I could beat him in this in this second game was with Thopters, because he had named Tezzeret, and he had a Jit, Falia, 45 Vryn Wingmares, and I had to beat him with Thopters. Um, and it just took forever. Like the, I'm netting like two life every attack, because he has like a fintuple striking Jit. So that sucked. And then I... I got my... Second loss in the one two or bye bye, maybe bye bye bye. Um, or seventh round in the seventh round, I got my second loss against Rug. I never, I never even played Magic. Like he won the roll. Like days your first spell, waste you days the spell, days of the next spell, which I wanted to get days didn't matter. Still had force. Like that kind of Rug matchup where you just never even play. And then I dropped. <clears throat> um, so, yeah. clarify for me, like, if I, my, if, if my opponent names Tezzeret with his Revoker, and I don't bring it up, and then try and activate next turn, the judge is just going to rewind, right? And, like, we're going to clarify the situation and then continue. Yeah, I, you know, there's no way to get anybody, I don't think. Unless so. it's, like, a Tezzeret you haven't played yet, and it's, like, three turns later. I'm pretty sure the judge is just going to make you clarify and make you rewind. I agree. Yeah, I think uh, he might even give us both GRVs. Because, At that point, yeah, for, for yeah, your fault for not clarifying. Right, you're an a-hole for not clarifying. Like, you're the guy playing Tezzeret, so when your opponent just says Tezzeret, it's sort of up up to you to clarify. I mean, if at, the, if, that, if at that point you call a judge and you say, Judge, my opponent has resolved Phyrexian Revoker and he has not named a legal magic card, you know, maybe the... Maybe the Revoker guy gets a warning or whatever. I mean, it doesn't really matter, but you're, well, you're, not, I mean, you're never going to get anybody, I don't think. When, when you play those name of cards, you're allowed to get close, right? You're allowed to describe the card and you're allowed you to ask describe, the judge. You can ask the judge. Yeah, you can ask the judge based on a bunch of characteristics what the card name is. Yeah. Uh, and that, that's a problem, especially at international tournaments, because if I'm just playing against some French guy and he goes, les I don't actually know what the card is in French. He's named a magic card. So, yeah, you got to be able to identify it according to the characteristics. But now, there's, now, you know, he can pie the needle LED. We all know that, right? That's legal. Actually, players that beat me all the time pie the needle LED and think it is actually going to do something. But good old Revoker didn't work. So, yeah, 
Anyway, yeah. The only interesting match I had uh, was against Sneak and Show, I guess. It was kind of interesting. I had uh, game one, he's show and tells, and I dropped Bridge. And he spent so much time game one just doing stuff. And he, he had, it turned out he actually had no way to remove the bridge. But he spent like 20 minutes countering my stuff and all this other thing. And it turned out that he just had no idea how I was going to win and wanted to see more of my deck. But he spent an awful lot of time in a hard lock position to like... Anyway, he ended up losing the whole match because he continued to cast the card show and tell for some reason, allowing me to put things like Trinisphere, Smokestack, and, and Snaring Bridge in play. But... It was strange so, to not recognize how I was going to win. If he couldn't win, he knows he can't force all of my win conditions. And, like, he, we spent almost 30 minutes me trying to, like, plow through a win condition. It just it didn't seem like a... I guess he figures he wins so fast, he, he'll sit and take 20 minutes and stare at me while I cast cards in my deck. I, I don't know. It didn't make a lot of sense to me. But Yeah, I mean, I'm okay with waiting for, like, the first one you see. You know, like, you don't have a win condition yet, but I want to see whatever you do have in your deck. I want to see the first one, and then concede. That's fine with me, just at least you get some information. Yeah. But, uh, if you're going to wait yeah. for, like, you know, if you're going to wait for 30 turns... Oh, it was obvious. I mean, like, I had yeah. he'd forced the Tezzeret, and, like, there was a Sword of the Meek in the graveyard, and, like, I don't... Those are my Some two primary win conditions. Yeah. They just don't see the writing on the wall. Um, no. I got a question for you, though. Are you asking for time extensions from judges when you get... Oh, yeah. Vehicles? Okay, you're actually getting sufficient amount of time. Well, in the match against the Death and Taxes player, I mean the judge, the judge didn't stray more than ten yards from our table. I mean, I'm, I'm using hyperbole, but I, there was probably eight to ten Oracle text calls. Yeah. yeah. So are you, are you getting your ten fifteen minutes of time extension, or are you? Yeah, I mean, maybe I didn't ask on the last few of them or whatever, but it's it's frustrating to play in an eternal GP and have to get have to get the text on Chalice of the Void. I mean, fuck off! Like, I'm always off. asking. I mean, yeah. if the judge doesn't bring it up immediately, I'm I'm going to ask him for a time extension. Um, and that's not a matter of being worried about time. It's just a matter of wanting to make sure I don't have a problem. <laughs> yeah, I don't know that I could have won in the actually in in retrospect the, the third game. Maybe I could have. I yeah, think so I like, probably could have. Yeah, I was ahead and I lost a burn from there. I'm obviously all kind of mentally out of it. I was a little bit pissed off. Yeah. So yeah. I, really, I thought the whole idea was, well, I got pies, so I'll avoid burn. And I just drew a bunch of ancient tomb hands, and I played like crap anyway, and whatever. Fuck me. But well, I hear there was a lot of burn at that event, too. There was uh, a lot of burn. There was. Yeah. It was a... It was a popular deck, I guess, and just like Burn always does at a big event, it's a popular deck, and it's just like never top eights because it's bad, but people play it anyway. So it's sort of like the fish deck. It helps fund the whole event, mm -hmm. and poor people can play it and put their money into the tournament for the people who have real cards and can make actual functional legacy decks. So just you like need the Burn players. Yeah, just like They're the like the bottom of the pyramid. <laughs> You know, like the, the shit on the bottom of the ocean. You know, like the flounders eat the shit. You know, the next biggest fish eats the flounder. Shark eats the tuna. So on and so forth. That's the burn deck. It's the flotsam just sitting at the bottom of the ocean. <laughs> <laughs> the biotin eats all. 
Yeah. I mean, I had fun. The Artist Alley was amazing, and, like, getting to see some people out there was fun, and uh, there was vintage, and, uh, yeah, I mean, the Artist Alley was pretty insane, so that, that was almost worth it for me to go. I mean, I wouldn't have actually played in the main event if I didn't have the buys. I was I would have just sat and got stuff signed for two straight days, and they had a vintage event every day. So, so going back to Atlanta, though, um, like 40 and 50 is pretty good for legacy events because that's just their four-round challenge events. Um, but, Evan, you said like 13, 15 for vintage? Um, yeah. That, like, that's pretty decent. I mean, if they had scheduled a better time, maybe they could a little more... Uh, but I know they had some conflicts with the legacy events, so that kind of hurts. Uh, is that something they're going to continue to do, or was that not sufficient for them? I would hope so. I mean, we fired every vintage event at GP Atlanta, and they were scheduled awful. The timing was absolutely awful. It was always overlap. It overlapped with both ends of the legacy tournament. And I know you like, brought that up with them, right? You you mentioned explicitly to them. I mean, I mentioned it to a floor judge. I don't know that I actually, like, emailed Star City or twatted them or anything, but... I thought someone did. I thought someone emailed Star City to clarify that. I mean, I I tweeted and thanked them for actually scheduling them, but... I mean, it it wasn't like... Look, if they put the... If they put the Legacy at 10 and the Vintage at 6, I'm not saying we would have gotten 25 for Vintage, you know, but I think we would have gotten 15 to 20. I think would have been uh, would have would have maybe I mean Seattle we got like seventy or eighty for the vintage so it's still a drop in the pond compared to um, compared to other areas um, but I was just happy it fired we, you know also some locals that you know could lend out decks weren't there I didn't like build dredge just to throw it at somebody to bump the attendance by one either because I didn't want to play against Dredge. So, you didn't want to lose to me. Mm. Yeah, I mean, it's, you know, <laughs> you're basically putting this predatory deck in the field that wouldn't otherwise be there that's a really, really, really good deck that burns a bunch of your sideboard slots. So most of us that showed up who knew that nobody was going to bring Dredge just cheated on our sideboards. <laughs> but, I mean, I think it's interesting that actually Star City, you know, jumped on that idea and said, okay, we're going to try and do some vintage events. Yeah, I think if, if as long as it fires, uh, you know, and nobody makes a – nobody cries and complains about it, um, I would say the only thing that people were a little down on was just the whole idea of, of the prize tickets in the wall. But if you can consistently turn those into store credit, then I'm fine with it. I don't, I don't, I don't care. I might, you know, I don't mind hauling them around. And you're saying I can go home, put them in my uh, – put them in the – onto the website for credit, that's perfect for me. That's fine. It means, means over time I'll, I can follow your events around, build up the credit, and then get a card that I want, and I don't have to go get, a, you know, a cat porn playmat. Yeah, like, that's a great shift for them, uh, moving prize wall tickets into credit. Because um, I know a lot of people were upset when they actually moved the 5Ks into prize wall tickets, uh, but at least there's some value to them now. Um, and I think I mentioned this, I'm not sure if you guys talked about it, but, you know, like, their prize payout, it's fairly even as far as it used to be. Um, the difference is just that it's all in credit. You don't have an option of cash. But, I mean, those 5Ks were, were a losing deal for them no matter how you look at it. Because I played in, like, four of them, and they were, you know, less than 100 people. 
Here, no, there can be only one. Okay, all right, that's a nice him. Yeah, the last Atlanta 5K was 70-something people. Yeah, it's like, so, if you look at that financially, they're losing, like, a ridiculous amount of money just trying to run these events um, because they're they're losing money off the top immediately just because they're not getting enough entry fees. Um, and they're going to pay their floor judges, they're going to pay their staff, they're going to pay for the venue. And they're not going to recoup any of that because they're not actually getting players to play in profitable events. Um, if people are there and playing in, you know, bad EV drafts, at least they're making something. But if they're playing in these legacy challenge events, they're they're losing money and they're tied up for eight hours. So I mean, I understand. Yeah, I, get it. I understand the the need to shift that away from that kind of losing structure. Um, I mean, I'm sure they make plenty of you know decent profit on all their card sales, and that and buying. I mean, I think we've all established the primary. Well, the motive for this is a is a roving buy machine, right? Right, and they they travel around the world, and they well they, they travel in the U.S. and they just buy up all the local stock, and that's fine. I mean, if that's their like if that's their main profit goal in these events, that's that's okay, because I don't think anything is really that profitable, as far as the events are concerned, because you're paying ridiculous overhead for those venues. Um, some of them, not bomb. Some of these wasn't the DC one in some hellhole in New Jersey. Uh, New Jersey? I, I know the New Jersey know. one, is I was told, was in some shit shack. I mean, right. Atlanta was in the World Congress Center. So what's the first, I'm curious actually, what the, the GP schedule for the f- spring, the very first Star City GP, are they doing Washington? I don't think they're doing Washington. Their website is down right now. I was trying to get there. Oh. Um, StarCityGames.com is down? Yeah, well... I tried how to will I you. get um, how will I get my daily helping of fluffy animal porn? All right, here let's yeah, look I at mean, the. <laughs> the I really need to see all those articles. <laughs> yeah, I missed the latest article on stand. Well, all right, they're definitely doing Grand Prix Charlotte Modern, right? That's a given. They'll always do the Charlotte one, and that's May twenty twentieth. Okay. That's not Maybe they bad. do the Washington one too, although. TJ Collectibles has also done that. When they say Grand Prix Washington, we have to understand that they really mean bombed out uh, Dulles Airport, Walmart, Grand Prix. They mean Chantilly, Virginia, which yeah. is conveniently 10 minutes for me. Oh, yeah, you're definitely going to go to that and play some sealed, huh? Oh, yeah, that would be exciting. Well, yeah. what's exciting is that if Star City runs it and they follow through on what they've been doing, they will um, they will have plenty of eternal events because... Uh, well, it'll be worth the day trip. Definitely. Um, Man, Grand Prix New York City. That could be awesome if it's an actual New York City. I don't know. I don't know who's running that either. Yeah. Wizards website is actually the most... I mean, there's just no information. Oh, wait, here we go. I take that back. I can't remember scroll down. Actually had, or New York City actually had an event. Yeah, yeah. Oh, it's in the Meadowlands. Oh, never mind. Hey, if you go to this link I'm going to put in the chat here, Hold on. And you just have to scroll way down. They actually do have the organizer listed. Hold on. Hold on, hold on. I've solved the mystery of the Sphinx here. So scroll way, 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 way down, and then you can see they have the schedule, and they have the they have the venue for almost everything through, at least through August, and then they have the organizer. So, the, so Star City is doing Washington. That's good. So it's not going to be TJ Collectibles. That's a good deal. 
And then Star City is also doing Charlotte, as we expected. Who's uh, doing the Legacy GP? Let's find out. The Legacy GP is in Columbus. Uh, Columbus, Ohio. Professional event services. services. Get bent. <laughs> that's going to suck ass. Uh, that's Hold on here. Is, that, is that two Legacy GPs in the same weekend? Yeah, remember? They did that last oh. year, too. Oh, yeah, yeah, okay. So that way they don't have to... Well, which one will I go to? Oh, I'm going to the Columbus. The Columbus one's going to be sick because but the one Columbus one is a week out from Origins. So you get to, like, just take a whole week and a half vacation and just be a nerd for, like, two weeks, go play Dungeons & Dragons, and then, like, hang out in Columbus for a week, lift weights, and then go play Magic uh, the week after, which is sick. I may be getting that backwards. Hold on. Origins 2016. Anyway, they, they're, they're in the same exact convention center, same city, only a week apart. And in years past, uh, Star City has always duct-taped a Star City Open to Origins game fair. They have the last few years. I don't know if they're going to do it this year, but it would be a shitty time to really stop it. Yeah, I mean, if it's a working system, they should keep it running. Well, I might have it backwards. Okay, so Origins is June 15th through the 19th, and the Legacy GP is June 10th through the 12th, so... Hang out, play in the Legacy GP, uh, cast a perfect brainstorm 10,000 times, and then the next week, go to Origins. So, that's what <laughs> I'm going to do. So, notably, I do not have a major event coming up, uh, but I'm going to this uh, win, a, win a time walk event this weekend. Oh, yeah, I uh, saw that on the uh, Eternal website. Let me, pull, let me pull the name. Legacy Quest for Power 9. Uh, yeah. This is an event that Squabbles in Maryland, Glen Burnie, Maryland, is running. I'm familiar uh, with Glen Burnie. The uh, DMV is there. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> the venue itself is not the most exciting thing. It's a it's a tiny little shop. Well, it's not tiny, but it's it's a shop inside of a mall. Uh, so Meadow! You get all the overhead of the mall. Um, when I was there for number two, actually, the security guard was trying to kick us out because we were there past close. But you know, well, it's, it's it's an event, and I'm I'm, I'm going to go to it. The last one was 83 people, and that felt pretty tight. Uh, they might be able to do 100 people, but I'm not I'm not excited to see 100 people at event. What's the buy-in for it? So, the buy-in for these events is thirty dollars, and they are progressively upping the power that they're giving away. Uh, so this one is time walk, with second place being a time vault. Wow. Uh, third and fourth is an underground seat of your, you know, an underground seat for each person. Uh-huh. Uh, fifth through eight is one force of will, and ninth through sixteenth is fifty dollars store credit. And you think and, it'll cap around eighty people? No, I mean I don't think there's really a hard cap that they have. Uh-huh. Um, when I was there, there was eighty-three, and that felt tight. You'll just uh, have to go play out in the food court. I mean, I'm sure they can seat more, but it's it's going to be. There's got to be a limit. I mean, it's probably 100 people max, so they can really fit in that event. Uh, well, that's still pretty good for, uh, I mean, a time walk's 800 bucks. Well, I mean, like, we were there on Sunday morning, though. So uh-huh. I mean, if they really want to, I guess they could put the tables out in the event hall, or in the mall. Just yeah, early minute, Sunday, like. it's mostly old people walking around the mall for exercise. The mall was empty the entire day. Hmm. It's just one of those quiet malls. So, I mean, if they really want to push it, I mean, they could probably get the rights to go out into the middle of the mall and actually make it work. 
Meet me in the mall. It's going down. Yeah. <laughs> but $30 for this kind of event is pretty good. And I, I kind of, you know, I think Atlanta needs to find something like that. And I think the Gigabytes Monthly is really going to be the best place to start. Um, yeah, I mean, we hit 40, was it 48, Evan? Yeah, we had 48 um, with, like, we had finals going on for the college, dude. Like, Cousin Anthony couldn't make it, and uh, uh, Iman from Cairo um, <laughs> didn't have uh, Mike on from the dads. <laughs> uh, and uh, so we, we had a lot of missing candidates. Um, and there was, like, some bars of big game hunting in the woods of Arkansas. Yeah, SMD was missing. Uh, Beta Fiend was missing. He was recovering from a night of clubbing. Sneak and Show Dad. Sneak uh, Show Dad didn't make it. Punk Rock Pox Dad. Punk Rock Pox Dad, yeah, yeah. Uh, Elf Mill. Who? Uh, Elf Mill. Elf Mill. Elf Mill. Remember Oh, yeah, yeah, Elf Mill. Yeah. The guy that doesn't know that Alter of the Brood has text in his Elf deck. Yeah, that guy. Yeah. He's sick. Um, and then, uh, there was some going on in Charlotte, too, so. That thing didn't hardly fire at all, so hopefully those people will just come down here next time. Yeah, I think, yeah, I think, like, um, there was some overlap, so I think, like, if they come, if there's an overlap, they'll come down to ours, and hopefully some people from Atlanta will go up to theirs, you know, so I think that's important, you know, with, uh, the scheduling, so we're in communication with them now. Um, so the next one, we should have a much better turnout, I'm imagining, because now people know that it's going to fire with good numbers. Price support, I think, is going to be upped, and uh, I think there won't be that overlap that bothered us last time. And hopefully we can avoid finals as well for our 10 or 15 so, legacy players that missed it. Quick question, but how well was this advertised to non-Atlanta people? Uh, I joined the that showed up, but like, did more people need to know about it? Outside of Atlanta? I think it wouldn't hurt. I think we went on uh, MTG The Source and uh, Managerain, and I joined, like, I should have uh, advertised it on South Florida Magic sooner. I, like, advertised it, like, a week before. Uh, then just forgot about it. Florida um, was a drive up. Yeah, I mean, it would have really been great to see some Chocolate Jund come up from South Florida Magic. Exactly. So, um, we got, I basically got like Savannah and Charlotte and some of those South Carolina guys that a lot of us have played out in Casey. Um, and uh, some Alabama people. So, I think, like, through the searching, like, in the final two weeks before the event, I found a lot of groups. Um, but now I have a better grounding with, um, so hopefully we'll have, you know, strong advance and more advertising. It's always like, it's kind of interesting, you know, just learning this whole process of marketing something like one of your hobbies or whatnot, um, to help it flourish. So it's, it's been a learning process for sure, but it's, it's interesting. It's definitely like, uh something to keep in the back pocket or just be aware of when people are trying to kick stuff to you. And I don't know. Uh, it's, it's slowly ticking up though, as far as uh, the communication in the Southeast, I think. And that's going to be the key is uh, making it worthwhile for people to travel to um, and getting the word out in advance without overlap. 
so I'm start, I was thinking like we did kind of that split amongst the top eight where you know a dual land for each and curious if it's better to add more like I wanted to, I made that play mat and kicked it for first place so that there was more incentive for somebody to uh, show up and travel actually for the event. Well, I mean, it's great now you actually have the right channels and you've got some contacts to really get the message a little further out. Um, that should work pretty well. Uh, yeah, I mean, go ahead, John. Yeah, I mean, I think the prize payout was uh, also, I, I think that people felt the prize payout is, has like a very, very even slope. You know, it wasn't like first place gets a Lotus, Second prize is a set of steak knives. You know, it was like, it just slowly went down to eight. So I think people felt like, oh, if I can just squeak into the top eight, you know, I'll make I'll make money. Like so many fucking losers in the community seem to seem to uh, think about these things in terms of. So, but you know, so that was a nice part of the, of this pay of that payout style. The overall payout. If it's upped a little bit, great. But it was it degraded very very slowly. And I mean, even if you finished. Uh, what I paid out to ten, right? So, um, so you know, people felt like they were gonna get their money back or whatever, which is big for getting most people in. It's not necessarily what I care about or you care about, but that definitely uh, resonates with a certain subsegment of the population. We talked about that earlier, actually. How there was a there's definitely a subsegment that actually cares about getting value out of magic events, um, and I mentioned that they just they feel entitled to <laughs> taxmen. <laughs> you know, they they feel entitled to the, uh, if I go X1, I should get X value. You know, <laughs> Jansen. <laughs> Jansen especially. Um, and he'll complain about, you know, free legacy events on, like, the weekdays. He'll complain about free, like, free casual events. Oh, this this free casual event only paid out $50. wasn't good enough. You know, we did see a, a decent spike. You know, Evan, you remember, like, the three weeks prior when it was... Uh, when it was coming down to, you know, a bunch of people just needed to 401 more weekly to get the buy. And it, it definitely helped bump the weeklies. Yeah. Jansen needs to make money to actually pay for lunch and dinner. Yeah, I need to eat. <laughs> I need to eat. How am I going to eat? He doesn't stop working after he leaves work. Yeah, it's all work, no play. I think if we add a little more, I, I like the idea of the spread across the top eight. Um, I think it's really good locally. It's strong. I just think it gives people confidence and insurance that the money they're putting into this event that there's a good chance that at least they'll break even or do a little better. Um, but I think creating whatever push we can for the incentive for first so that traveling is more worthwhile, right. I think that's kind of where you want to be, that, that walking that tightrope, you know, where you can satisfy the local community and also push people to travel a distance to come, you know. Well, Journal extravaganza. I, I mean, I was there for a Lexicon, so it was cheating, but, I mean, that's an event where – you could consider buying a plane ticket because the payout is actually bigger than any Star City. You know, it's it's a higher entry fee. I think it was fifty to enter, and uh, but you know, there's like play sets of or sets of forty duels being given away, um, spread throughout the top eight, and you know, Vintage is giving away like a Lotus or whatever. So when you start to get to that kind of scale, the TO is taking a big risk. But, yeah, I think you are going to get more people willing to drop 250 bucks on a plane ticket. Well, what was the payout for Gigabytes? It was, like, 
see Volk trop, right? Um, and so there's really not much distinction between first and second and the rest. I think that's what really, you know, that's where you should start at least, is I want to make first and second more valuable. Um, just because first by itself is great, but if you make first and second it's a little more valuable, it makes them a little more pre- pre- prestigious. Um, yeah. There's a, a little bit of a bump there between I top-aided and I made first and second. Well, I think that was the that was definitely the um, kind of the inspiration to build the play mat for first, like a champion mat, which I think for the next one, you know, design another mat and then, you know, actually put the whole Giga sort of champion text on there um, just to make it more uh, – just more satisfying to the person. Again, I, th- I, I kind of lean more on the side of the notoriety where people like to be on stream. They like to have their deck list post. And I think they want, like, a champion play mat. You know, it's actually cool. So I think, like, that would probably be the next push from the play mat, um, which something that will help separate first from the rest. Um, but I definitely do think, like, a little more push in the payout for first is, uh, is probably the best route to take. And I, yeah, I agree. The, the playmat is cool, and it's you know, well, it's gonna t- you know, it's your time and effort. But besides your time and effort, it's thirty or forty bucks, and it does. It's a cool piece of swag to take away that Wu will never remember to actually bring and play with for the rest of his life. Wu will probably throw it <laughs> in some kind of closet, and he'll never yeah. see it again. That thing's gone from daylight. The playmat's fine, and like, it works out well as long as they're exclusive. Like I don't know how many like, SCG five K playmats I have, and I kind of want to just burn them. Um, yeah, I mean, you what a I'm because do. they look terrible, and B because I just there's so many of them out there already, and I already have so many of them. I have a reliquary tower play mat I got from some homeless man that uh that I'm gonna use to wipe my ass. You want to join uh, my bonfire? In about party? five minutes because I have to drop off the call because I have to. Uh, I just ate a bunch of Korean barbecue. And I think with that, though, we should probably start <laughs> wrapping up though. Um, yeah. So the big note is that the Legacy scene in Atlanta uh, with this monthly event, it's, it's really going to help. Um, I'm stuck in the middle of nowhere, Virginia. Yeah, either that or just because you left, everyone everything. wanted to come play Legacy again. I, the, two, whoa, whoa, whoa. the two events are correlated. I don't we're know which died. is the causation. I died when I left. <laughs> everyone stopped coming. People wanted to start selling out when I left. Huh. It's true. Yeah, it's I true. lived up where you live. You know, I worked in Fairfax. It's... So it's a good area, but um, like the problem we're having is that just legacy players don't want to actually make the drive to mm. weeklies. Traffic um, fucking sucks donkey cock up there. There's, the worst. there's a sufficient number of players, but there's not enough actual incentive to get out on the weekdays. Yeah. Which means that the, the weekend events are great. You know, like, it's a, it's a great time. Uh-huh. But <laughs> the, uh, like, they're trying to fire, like, Monday night legacy and it hasn't really fired recently. We did a, what, six-man event on Monday with one of the guys being a guy that just came back after 10 years. So, it's one of those things where it's just a matter of driving it home, and Atlanta ran into that as well, and you guys had the problem where if people don't show up for a couple weeks, no incentive to drive an hour and a half to go play Legacy. Um, If you can't guarantee 20 people, it's not worth the trip. All right. All right, on that note...